This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Our COVID health crisis is expected to have short-term as well as long-lasting economic effects. We recently talked about the rail project with rail supporter and former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanneman about the possible impacts on the project and the recovery plan. Here's what he had to say. This is a time to be flexible with everything. This is a time to be open-minded with everything. But I do know one thing. It's too late to tear down that project. Uh, It's too late to stop that project because it will cost us more in paying back the federal government what they have already spent on the project. And most importantly, take it down will cost a whole lot more that it has been to put it up so far. So you're, you're hoping then that the federal government will be reasonable in, in some of these deadlines put yeah, down? Yeah, and I think they will have to be, I mean, because it's happening all over. I mm-hmm. know that they have emergency assistance funds through the Department of Transportation to help uh, many of these transportation systems that are already operating because uh, they recognize that people are not going to ride as much, and especially if you're encouraging them to stay home, they're going to need those those subsidies that assistance. So I think there are areas, and this is where our congressional delegation can be very critical uh, in helping us identify where they are and then making a case for Hawaii uh, for the system that is already operating, for example, our bus system, to make sure that we can continue to operate it because there will be people that will rely on it, uh, especially emergency situations, to get to a doctor or what have you. We reached out to Heart CEO Andy Robbins about the overall impact that this healthcare um, health crisis shutdown may have on the rail project. On one hand, some of the construction may get accelerated, but there could be delays as well. So it's certainly affecting rail and the project. However, having said that, our construction does continue. The project falls under the category of essential infrastructure. Both the mayor's directive and the uh, governor's directive did have a category of essential infrastructure, and they both had mentioned the rail project as being one of those projects that was essential to continue forward. What can you tell us about you know, whether we can accelerate any construction, particularly I'm thinking of like the uh, Kapalama Dillingham area, because you won't have the maybe the businesses that would be impacted otherwise. Well, that's correct. Specifically on our city center utilities relocation work, and that encompasses the work on Dillingham Boulevard, we had a goal to obtain the necessary permit so that we could go to the controlled lanes on Dillingham Boulevard between Middle Street and Mokawea Street. And the goal was to establish those controlled lanes by March 24th, and we met that goal. We were able to obtain the the permits with the cooperation of the city. We went down to the scenario where we have one lane in each direction between those streets, operational 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that allows uh, our contractors to have uh, greater access to the work site. They don't have to set up the cones and take the cones down at night. They can leave the equipment there. And most importantly, they can work uh, more than 20 hours a day, at least six days a week, and and sometimes on Sundays as well. So in that regard, we are able to uh, accelerate the work. And certainly with the lower traffic counts that we're seeing right now, uh, that gives us the opportunity to accelerate the work even further. And then what about deadlines or shipments of things? I don't know how that's all been impacted. Well, in terms of the actual construction on the road, the majority of the materials that are needed are are already there, are accessible to the contractors. Where we are seeing some effect now is more on the uh, Hitachi rail side in terms of supplying the operating equipment for the trains and for the, uh, some of the technology uh, systems that we have that are part of the rail. We're actually getting the trains that we need. We just received one of our trains last week, and we have another one going to the dock in San Diego ready to be shipped to Honolulu. So the production facility uh, where the cars are assembled, the trains are assembled in uh, the Bay Area, that is operational. We're continuing to receive the trains that we need. Uh, There are some other equipment that we're still waiting for. There's a supply out of China that we're still waiting for that may be delayed. Also, some of the technical support uh, that we need on the Hitachi rail side is being affected by the virus situation because when people come here, 
they have to go through the same 14-day quarantine that everyone else does. As far as any language in the contracts that we have, you know, I know they always talk about, you know, force majeure, but I mean, how does that affect who pays what, you know, if there is a delay? Well, our construction contracts do have what's called a force majeure provision in them, which is unforeseeable event. Uh, some people would call it an act of God. It could well be that this COVID-19 situation does fit the category of a force majeure. We're not there yet in terms of uh, granting any force majeure provisions, but the way uh, the provision is in the contracts is it gives the contractors more time, but it does not give them more budget. Are there particular deadlines that you're concerned about that are coming up? We have our our goal of uh, being ready for interim service later this year. Right now, we feel that we have about a three-week delay in meeting that goal. doesn't necessarily mean that we can't make it up, but we are seeing some effects from the COVID-19 situation on our ability to to meet the uh, interim service. And then also in terms of our procurement for the city center guideway and station, there's a concern there as well. For the city center utilities work, as well as our our construction on the first nine stations, that's all proceeding uh, fairly normally right now. And in fact, on the utility work, We're looking at a way to expedite that work and speed it up, given the fact that our traffic loads are are lighter than than normal. Are there any federal deadlines that we're in danger of not meeting, you know, or will they slip? And, you know, will we see a need to ask the FTA for a break? We have our recovery plan, as you recall, that did develop a schedule and a budget and a plan of finance that meets, uh, that's based on those uh, schedules and budgets. Certainly, the situation with the virus could affect our ability to complete the project according to the recovery plan, and that's something that we've already conferred with the FDA on, so they're well aware of it. Certainly understand the uh, totally unusual situation that, that we're in with the COVID-19. And when you say you may slip on the schedule by three weeks, are, are we talking then the interim service? Well, the interim service that I'm speaking about was planned for the end of the year this year. And right now we're projecting about a three-week delay in our in Hart's ability to provide the operational readiness so that the city can then see fit to uh, begin the interim service. They were planning on a December startup. We were planning on having the system operationally ready by October. Right now, we're planning a three-week delay on, well, we're seeing about a three-week delay on that, on the October readiness. So it's possible then that could slip into 2021 then? That's correct. It's possible. Getting back to the funding levels, because the TAT and the excise tax, you know, we're not bringing in as much. How are you looking at that? Well, fortunately, the the collections on the GET side, for example, in January and February were very strong. Certainly, I think everyone's anticipating a major uh, impact due to the virus beginning in March, the March collections. And the rail project, as you know, obtains a lot of its funding based on a 0.5% surcharge of the GET. So if the GET collections are greatly impacted, then, then that will affect the uh, collections for the rail project as well. The rail project also uh, has a 1% intake from the TAT, and, and certainly starting in March, we would expect to see a major decline in that as well. Do we have a contingency plan? Well, you know, right now, it really depends on how long the situation with the virus uh, lasts. We are looking at various scenarios in terms of our ability to uh, utilize the collections that we have. We have financing mechanisms in place with the city, you know, the bonds that we have, commercial paper that we have in terms of obtaining the funding that we need to continue our operations. We're looking at all these scenarios, but it's really hard to speculate because we really don't know how long this is going to last. How different are your meetings now? Oh, well, our operations, I think like all businesses and government agencies, are greatly affected. We have the majority of our people working from home at this point, telecommuting, but that's actually working out, I think, quite well. People have adapted to the new way of working very well. All of our meetings now include an option to either dial in or video conference via the internet. We are definitely practicing social distancing for those that do come into the office, hand washing, and obviously if people are sick, we're telling people do not come into the office. Everyone has adapted to the new way of working and I I believe it's going quite well. You know, certainly uh, it's an impact to the project. The good news is that we're able to maintain construction. Uh, Our first nine stations 
stations. We are nearing completion on those stations. The work that Hitachi Rail is doing in terms of testing all of the systems, especially the first 10 miles to get that ready, operational ready for uh, potential interim service. That's all proceeding. If not normally, we are making progress and working our way around the COVID-19 effects. And then our city center utilities is actually an opportunity to accelerate some work. So that's the silver lining. That's the silver lining. And, you know, this is very important to the local economy as well because this is one sector that, that can continue. Those construction folks that are out there working are earning a paycheck. They're still buying lunch. They're, they're going to the supermarket. So certainly with the uh, downturn in the economy, the tourism levels going to near zero, I think this is very important to everyone uh, here for the local economy. We are looking at ways to even uh, find other other work that we can accelerate to, to try to help in that regard as well. So we're still studying, you know, what work we might be able to move up in time somewhat so that we can actually get uh, more people employed and, and get those people out on the road and doing the work that the project needs anyway. And then can you say what specifically out of China that's hanging things up? Is it something like some computery thing? Yeah, there, it's uh, some components that we need for our communications systems. Uh, we still are anticipating receiving it, but it's just delayed at this point. And then how many more trains do we need? We will have 13 trains on island, but we only need six trains for interim service. Now, some of the other trains will uh, need various uh, levels of work on them. We will certainly have the six trains that we would need for the interim service between East Kapolei and Aloha Stadium. So on the train side of things, we're in very good shape. We have really emphasized safe construction practices in regard to the virus. We put that information out to all of our contractors. We ask for their concurrence that they're going to implement all of those safe working uh, practices. And then we also reached out to the labor unions as well. So I think we're in good communications with, with our workers as well as with our contractors to ensure that as this essential infrastructure is uh, continues, that everybody is working safely. That was Andy Robbins, head of HART, giving us a snapshot of possible impacts to the rail project here in Honolulu because of this global health crisis. And while more governments in Europe and Africa clamp down on social interaction to slow the spread of the coronavirus, things in Italy and Spain appear to be looking up. The BBC gives us the latest on COVID-19 on the other side of the globe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday, the 6th of April. I'm Henry Bellow with the latest news on the pandemic. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been hospitalised, cardboard coffins are used to bury the dead in Ecuador and Americans are told to prepare for some of the saddest days of their lives. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been admitted to hospital for precautionary tests after being diagnosed with COVID-19. He was the first leader of a major country to test positive for the virus 11 days ago. The BBC's political editor is Laura Koonsberg. The government is absolutely trying to carry on as normal, but there cannot be any pretense this is business as usual. Of course, the Prime Minister's health is primarily a personal concern for him and his family, but right now, this government, as with governments around the world, are under intense pressure to make the best decisions they can. Boris Johnson remains in charge of the British government, but the Foreign Secretary will chair Cabinet's daily coronavirus meeting on Monday. Meanwhile, Queen Elizabeth has urged people to show self-discipline and resolve during the pandemic. In a rare address to the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, she acknowledged the grief, pain and financial difficulties many people are facing. I hope in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. And those who come after us will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any. New York remains the epicentre of the outbreak in the United States, but for the first time, the number of infections and deaths have dropped. The virus continues to spread across the country, and the Surgeon General Jerome Adams says that for many Americans, the coming days will be the hardest and saddest of their lives. The next week is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment. It's going to be our 9-11 moment. Uh, It's going to be the hardest moment for many Americans in their entire lives. And we really need to understand that if we want to flatten that curve and get through to the other side, everyone needs to do their part. Senior White House advisor Dr Deborah Burke says Americans should be encouraged by the slowing death rate in Spain and Italy. That's extraordinarily hopeful. They just completed four weeks of really strong mitigation. And I think that's our word to the American people, is we can look like that. 
The authorities in Ecuador have begun using cardboard coffins to bury the dead in the country's biggest city, Guacail. A surge in the number of deaths has led to a shortage of traditional wooden coffins. In recent days, many bodies were left abandoned on the streets or stored in refrigerated containers due to a collapse in local government services. Police in Spain have fined thousands of people for breaching social distancing rules. Our correspondent in Madrid, Guy Hedgeco, says officers have carried out more than three million checks on vehicles and people. That sounds like a huge number, and that perhaps suggests that lots of people are out flouting these restrictions. But I think what it points to more is how strictly the police are enforcing these restrictions. Social distancing laws are also being enforced in South Africa, where police arrested a bride and groom, a priest and 40 guests who defied a lockdown to attend a wedding. Video footage showed the groom helping his bride-to-be into the back of a police car, wearing her wedding dress complete with train. There are more than 1,500 cases of the virus in South Africa, which has one of the world's strictest distancing regulations. Almost all major sports leagues have been cancelled or suspended due to the pandemic, but football continues to be played in four countries, Belarus, Burundi, Tajikistan and Nicaragua, where not all players feel safe. Here's our reporter, Nigel Adderley. Dilianguen are the one side which voted against playing. And their general manager, Sergio Salazar, says the players are really scared, but they don't feel as though they have any choice. They have to play. And the players from one of the world's biggest football teams, Bayern Munich, will return to training on Monday for the first time since football was suspended in Germany. We know that social distancing is the best way to slow the spread of the virus and to save lives. But how do you make sure others don't stray too close to you? Well, a Brazilian man who has recovered from the virus has created a mobile phone program to help. It's called the 1.5 app. Anna Holligan has the details. Whenever someone carrying a mobile device breaches your designated social distance, your phone vibrates. The app uses Bluetooth technology to calculate the space between you and them. And if someone gets too close, the app displays a sad face designed to be shown to diffuse any potential tensions. Thanks for listening and stay safe. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kilauea Lodge and Restaurant in Volcano Village, Hawaii Island, currently offering a curbside daily takeout menu for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and delivery service to Volcano residents. KilauaLodge.com. Are you stressed out and anxious hearing about the latest numbers of cases of COVID-19? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I know I am. Today on The Body Show, we'll talk with psychologist Dr. Martin Johnson about what he recommends for dealing with the dramatic changes we've all had to make to help combat the spread of coronavirus. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we go to Maui, specifically Wailuku. Constructed in 1833, the koa wood and lava rock structure was built at the bottom of Iao Valley. It's the former royal compound of Maui's last ruling chief, Kahikili II. In 1837, it was turned into the Wailuku uh, Female Seminary, and students were uh, were taught Christianity, domestic skills like sewing, and academic studies. Missionary teachers moved into the house, and their families lived there until 1888. By 1957, it was turned into a museum and can still be visited today. Inside the museum includes artifacts from pre-European contact and hundreds of landscapes showing 19th century life on Maui, painted by the house's main resident. What is the name of that museum? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawai'i's people and places. Updated property listings with photos and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. Civil Beat has been taking a closer look at how this health crisis has impacted the judicial system. Editor Chad Blair joins us with the story that's up online today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> As am I. Yes, it's Monday, another week. Uh, but yeah, so the impact uh, to our courts. Yeah, this story is from uh, Yu Jung. She covers uh, the criminal justice system. And, and Catherine, I know that you know this as a reporter. If you've ever gone into the First Circuit Court building there on Punchbowl, Ka'ahu Manu Hale, boy, it's usually just bustling, right? There's people all over the place, lawyers, defendants, people being called for jury duty. Well, you went there last week, and it was just like pretty much everywhere else, pretty much empty, really like a ghost town. And that's because, as you know, since the pandemic, uh, spread last month, the U.S. state and federal courts uh, have been closed because of the coronavirus, and that is definitely the case here at home. Right, and it's affected all kinds of cases. It has, and of course this is understandable, but it really has spread a lot of confusion for folks. There's worry about unintended legal consequences and, and financial ramifications, and could this mean there's a pileup uh, and backlog of cases? Almost certainly that's going to happen. You know, one of the cases uh, that has been postponed is uh, the Kealoha sentencing. That's for Catherine and Louis Kealoha, plus two of the police officers. Remember, I mean, how can we forget? But it seems like so long ago, convicted for conspiracy and obstruction charges. That was last year. Sentencing was supposed to have been last month. Now that has been postponed because the U.S. District Court uh, is closed at least until May 3rd. So that's just one example, high profile of that case, of uh, work that is not getting done in the judicial system. Right. And there's also just the more mundane stuff like it, traffic court, that kind of thing. Yeah, there there is some limited activity. But to be clear, all Hawaii courts, state courts, uh, are closed and have been since uh, March 20th, that's till the end of this month, April 30th, and that does include traffic, uh, criminal, civil cases. There are some in-court proceedings that have been limited and, and are still ongoing. Some cases actually are still being heard. It includes, for example, defendants that are already in custody, and that includes for felony and misdemeanor and even traffic charges. Uh, restraining orders are also still being processed. Uh, so you have to have some basics going on, but it's really things that in, in many ways had already started and were underway. Here's another example. What about child support? How how are you going to be able to make those payments if, for example, you are unemployed, as so many people are here in Hawaii? Well, we can tell you that the Child Support Enforcement Agency itself is actually closed right now. Yeah, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, I was looking online to see what other states were doing. And, and like you mentioned, you know, some cases are going through, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, some proceedings just totally suspended. I just was wondering about, like, uh, you know, getting a quorum for jury, uh, juries, you know, because of uh, the close quarters, you know, in courtrooms. I mean, how can you possibly get a jury together if you've got to be six feet apart or you're wearing a mask or wearing gloves? One of the people that you can talk to is Ken Lawson. He's a law professor. And he was saying, well, what about the defendant's right, constitutional right, mind you, to a speedy trial? And if I understood the story correctly, that's a 180-day limit. Well, we're now in a month or so, and we can easily see how we don't know when this crisis is going to end. But what, you know, what, do you, what do you do if you are denying that person their constitutional right? This raises a big question. Well, do you just dismiss the cases? And that is something that may have to be taken seriously. Yeah, it's interesting because you wonder, you know, what does the law say? What does it allow? 
uh, in a, a crisis like this because we've never really had a crisis like this. I know. Here's another one. Divorce cases. I mean, you know, anyone going through a divorce, I, I think most folks just want to get it over with and move on with their lives. And yet imagine having to be in limbo because that case cannot be heard. By the way, this is also affecting a whole heck of a lot of attorneys. I mean, if you think about it, uh, law firms are actually small businesses. And you hewn talked to Eric Seitz, a pretty prominent attorney. And, um, and of course, there's a cash flow concern because, you know, the money, the checks are not coming in. In the case of Eric Seitz, he's continuing to work uh, at the office when he can, but most of his staff is working remotely. But he also is trying to meet a payroll because people got to pay the bills. That's right. You know, I did talk to someone in the community who said, you know, they've had to cut salaries um, just in order to keep people employed. Uh, and, you know, we're having to furlough people. So, yeah, it's a, a difficult thing. Someone else I talked to uh, that's in a, a high-profile business said, you know, we're no longer operating as a for-profit. We're really non-profit. Right. I mean, I don't think you know, there's anybody that disagrees with the reason for this. It's in the interest of safety and public health, particularly of the people working in the judiciary. But some are saying to you, and we've got to come up with some other alternatives in order to, if you will, get justice done. Yeah. All very interesting. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org uh, to read Yu Jung's story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts, and it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from American Savings Bank, committed to the community and its well-being, dedicated to standing with Hawaii's families. ASBHawaii.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Preventing the spread of the coronavirus with masks has been top of mind for the last few weeks. It was also a topic we covered on last week Friday's call-in show with Dr. Kathy Kozak. We got this in our email with an important recommendation after the show aired. Aloha, a microwave oven needs to have the equivalent mass of one cup of water or more to protect the oven. If you place a relatively dry mask in the oven, you may be ruining your oven because it does not receive enough resistance in the form of water-containing matter. My father-in-law actually destroyed two microwave ovens by not having enough in it. A dryish mask will not heat up because there's not enough moisture in it. A radiant oven at 200 degrees would probably work better and not cause a fire hazard. Mahalo, Stanton Yum. Now, much of the feedback, uh, feedback we received in regard to microwaving masks to disinfect them came with the instructions to place a cup of water in there alongside with the mask and to make sure there is no metal in the mask. Anything with metal in it should be kept out of microwaves, folks. Another listener left this voice message on how to handle masks. Hi, this is Joan from Kaima Key. I wanted to talk about the uh, show about face masks and coronavirus. Proper handling is really important. After, before you put it on, you have to wash your hands. While you have it on, don't touch your face. And then when you take it off, really be careful. Just use your, um, take it off from the back, from the ear, ear bands, and then don't touch the front. And then, um, oh, and um, put, you can put um, alcohol in a spray, spray container and uh, use that instead of hand sanitizer if you don't have any hand sanitizer. And I was thinking maybe you could also use that to spray your mask and then put it out in the sun. You have to spray the inside and the outside if you don't, if it's not a washable mask. So, okay, thanks. All right. Thanks, Joan. 
And, you know, we got a letter uh, from a man who said he's homeless here on Oahu. Uh, he actually sent an email. Uh, he was describing how the coronavirus uh, crisis is affecting him. He writes, I became homeless days before New Year's Eve in 2008. I remain homeless since then. Why? Because it's because of reasons the media is not aware of. If a homeless man has been arrested for acts of violence, drugs, and or alcohol abuse or committing other crimes, the state of Hawaii is willing to provide housing, cash, money, free food, all in exchange for staying out of trouble. However, if a homeless man has never been arrested for acts of violence or any other reason, he has never been on drugs or becoming an alcoholic and otherwise is a clean and honest man. That man is not a threat to society. And so other than EBT, there is no sensible, reasonable, and civilized help to end his homelessness. The message from the state is, get yourself in jail then and come back and tell us how bad you are. Today, I understand the precautionary measures taken to fight the spread of a virus. I do not approve the unnecessary extreme extent such as measures are taken, but I understand the reason. I wanted to send you this email to make you aware that closing down everything leaves decent men like me, as well as women, wandering the streets not knowing where to go. At age 74, it is utterly harsh on rather weak knees and feet not to be able to take a seat as civilized men do. There is no such place other than to sit on the ground, which is not a civilized way to rest. Yours kindly and respectfully, George uh, Josserme. Hey, thanks for all this feedback. Please email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line at 792-8217. Many, the prospect of shutting oneself in one's home has come with its own highs and lows. But for some, government-mandated stay-at-home orders have uh, vastly complicated one of our biggest social issues, domestic violence. What can you do to get help when you live with your abuser and can't leave the home? Nancy Creedman, the chief executive uh, officer of the Domestic Violence Action Center, has flagged this dangerous situation. She spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino about protecting survivors of abuse in these uncertain times and how they can seek help without leaving the home. I think that Hawaii has a significant and undeniable challenge with domestic violence. I don't think that's unlike other communities across the country or across the globe. I think the problem of domestic violence is something that every community is faced with, challenged by, and uh, wrestles to address effectively. So for some, self-isolating is a sort of a huge benefit. You get to stay home, catch up on movies, hang out with your kids. But for a lot of people, this has been an unforeseen consequence in exacerbating domestic abuse. We are very uh, worried and mindful about the potential risks that victims of domestic violence face, particularly now. Always there is an element of uh, danger when you live with an abuser. However... When you have uh, access to uh, resources and the ability to go to work and maintain some contact with coworkers or church members or allies or family members, you are better positioned to get help or to get support or to flee. When you are sequestered uh, with your abuser at home, you have uh, no freedom, uh, no ability to be uh, mobile. You have no access to communication devices without being observed or overheard. And the level of uncertainty is very anxiety-producing uh, for victims in terms of their safety and for abusers in terms of the amount of control that they have or don't have. Domestic violence is a, uh, it's a problem of power and control. And of course, all of us are feeling very powerless in the face of this pandemic. If I were an abuser and I were feeling as powerless as I do about this pandemic, my powerlessness manifests in my relationship to those people who are closest to me. And uh, that's the risk 
that victims of domestic violence are living with. Now, I would imagine it's a lot harder to seek help in a case of domestic abuse while engaging in self-quarantining or self-isolating. Is that the case? It is very difficult to reach out for help with your abuser within earshot or within the same room. It occurred to us almost immediately that victims would not be able to place a telephone call, even a telephone call which is routinely anonymous and confidential, it would be very difficult to place that call. So we added a text feature, believing that survivors could possibly, in the bathroom or behind a closed bedroom door, send a quick text for information. We are trying to figure out the ways that we can best educate our community of survivors about the need for them to create safety plans, establish a means of communication with a supportive family member or friend or coworker, so in the event that they need help, they can get it. We're also trying to figure out the ways, besides educating our community of survivors, educating our community in its entirety. If any of us had any concerns about someone that we know or worked with or lived near or in our family, before, we should absolutely now reach out to them and make contact, offer support, and express our concerns for their safety. So in terms of quantifying this issue while we're facing this pandemic, are we seeing a spike in reported cases of domestic abuse? Reported to whom, I guess, would be my question. I don't know whether law enforcement is seeing a greater number of reports. At the Domestic Violence Action Center, since last Monday, we have received 55 inquiries from survivors for assistance. Some of those were telephone calls and some of those were texts. We also started the week last week by making contact with every single one of the survivors on our caseload to check in on them, to review their safety plans, to update their safety plans, to remind them that we're here to help them should they need help. So what can people do at a time like this? What sort of resources can they access? They can text us for help. They can call the police. They could consider going to a domestic violence shelter. I should mention that all of our community's domestic violence programs are open for business. So uh, hotlines and helplines are available as a resource. The police are always a resource. What the police bring to the situation is if there is an assault taking place, let's say it's my neighbor, if I call the police, when the police show up, the incident that's underway will be interrupted by the presence of the police. So that's always a good thing. Are shelters being impacted at all by social distancing, quarantining measures? Yes, they are. They are uh, currently working earnestly on a plan for making certain that They have social distancing and even the capacity to quarantine any survivors who come into their shelters. I don't know that they have fully resolved all the issues. I do know that they are working very hard on it. So going forward, what do you think the most important piece of advice would be to give to people who are facing a situation of domestic abuse during this crisis? The most important thing they can do is ask for help. Let somebody know that they need help. It is very, very embarrassing to be a victim of domestic violence. There's a lot of shame associated with it. People feel personally responsible for the domestic violence that's being perpetrated against them. So generally, people are quite reluctant to share the fact that they are uh, in a situation like that. I think I want to ask the community to suspend all judgment. And in that way, we are inviting survivors to call for help or to confide in somebody that they need help. One other uh, thought I had about guidance for safety planning for a survivor is there might be an image, a picture, or an emoji that you and I could agree on would be my signal to you that I need help. I do that in advance, and then if I'm in a situation where I am at risk, I send you that emoji or that image, and you know right away to call the police. That's something I would suggest that people consider doing, is developing some means of communicating danger that they're in, danger that they're facing, so that people can help. 
But most importantly, letting people out there know that there are ways to seek help and you don't have to stay locked up with an abuser if need be. Correct. Absolutely. Well, it's not easy to talk about, but Nancy, thank you so much for lending your expertise. You are welcome. Thank you so much for calling. That was Nancy Creedman, the Chief Executive Officer of the Domestic Violence Action Center. She spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino about how the ongoing global health crisis has further complicated the issue of domestic violence. On our backyard quiz today, we went to Maui to check out a museum in the historic district of Wailuku. The compound was the former royal residence of Maui's last ruling chief, Kahikili II. A house was built and was used as a seminary with missionary teachers Edward and Carolyn Bailey taking over operations and residing there from 1844 until 1849 when the school closed down. The Baileys lived there until 1888, and um, the house was later used as a plantation manager's home for Wailuku Sugar Company. Fast forward a century, and the Maui Historical Society leased the building to use as a museum from uh, Wailuku Sugar, starting in 1956 for just a dollar a year. Wailuku Sugar eventually closed, and Masaru Pundi uh, Yokuchi uh, purchased the property in the early 1990s, which he then donated to the society. Among the museum's collection includes a wooden statue of Kamapua'a, which has been hidden, uh, had been hidden in a cave for 100 years, and a Maui landscape paintings by Ed Bailey. In Hawaiian, the building, the building called Hale uh, Hoikeike, which means the House of Display, and is commonly referred to as the Old Bailey House Museum. And congratulations to Arnold Torres. You are today's winner. For today's quiz, uh, or that's today's quiz, and if you have an idea for one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. As the state and counties have ordered stay-at-home uh, orders for many workers, that leaves child care up in the air for essential workers. On Oahu, the YMCA of Honolulu and the Croc Center Hawaii are providing child care for essential workers, which includes health care services, grocery and pharmacy workers, and hardware stores. But that's only for children in grades kindergarten through fifth grade. For preschool-age children, Kamaina Kids is offering child care for essential employees at its seven locations on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. Another resource is Imua Family Services on Maui, which is offering child care at $3 a day for kids age 1 to 5 for medical staff, first responders, and essential Maui County employees. The nonprofit is an early, edu- uh, early childhood development organization with a focus on children with de- developmental delays and special needs. Its staff includes occupational therapists, speech-language therapists, spe- special education teachers, family coaches, social workers, and behavioral panelists. Dean Wong is the nonprofit's executive director. He talked with the Conversations Jason Ubai about the service that he calls a response to our community need. The thing is here, as we all know, the situation in our climate and in our own state and islands has been changing daily. And keeping up with that has been difficult, I think, in every business sector here in Hawaii. Our, the way that we do services has been greatly impacted in the sense that typically our therapists that I mentioned would go into individual homes and families and provide those essential therapeutic services working with the families in their own home environments. Some people would be coming here into our Early Childhood Development Center and receiving services. We run a full-time inclusion preschool, and so those children were coming every day for services, and the children that would be receiving services related to their autism diagnosis would also be coming here to the center, spending their hours and times with the therapists that are working with them. In this new situation where so much of our work has now changed to doing telework, telepractice, and telehealth services for our clients, 
so that they can remain in their homes and be safe and our staff can uh, do their work as much as possible from their home environments and be safe. There were a lot less activities happening in our child care centers and our early childhood development center. So when I stood back to take a look at that, I thought, you know, here we have these beautiful facilities that are that have been built for our community and that are that specialize specifically in the kind of work that we do with children in the age group from birth all the way through age five, so about up to age six. And when I looked at that, I said, it's really a shame to have these spaces sort of sitting here quiet and empty right now when there is such a dramatic need for child care suddenly pushed upon us. If you have healthcare workers that are working, you know, uh, consistently in their hospital or clinic settings, and suddenly their children don't have daycare and childcare and preschools because those are currently closed, how do those people go to work and perform those essential duties that our community needs so desperately right now? So we sort of put it out to our staff, you know, and you know, as I said to my staff at the very onset of this, you know, there's compassion and consideration for everyone and everyone has a different kind of a response when there's an emergency situation. You know, there's there's people that need to shelter themselves and stay safe. There's others that run towards the fire is the coin that I like to use and see what we can do for our community. So there were many of my staff who were able to sort of say, hey, we would be willing to provide this essential service for our medical community during this time. Um, the good thing about my staff being able to do this, uh, aside from our facilities being um, sort of catering to young children and having all of the right size furniture, all of the right size bathrooms, all of the toys, the, the play instruments and things that we would need, and the playground that is attached to our building, is that my staff are already qualified early childhood professionals. They've already had their background screenings in order to be able to work here, and we know that they're qualified to do this work. So um, we very quickly, and when I say very quickly, like within a day or two, put together an opportunity for the for these essential employees to be able to sign up if they needed childcare during this time. Now, I want to preface that it's not perfect, and when I say that, it's it's there are specific hours that we can do this based on the amount of staff and resources that we have, and and I know that some medical workers, for instance, their shifts can be 12 hours long, and these care situations that we're providing are not 12 hours long. But we, we are providing it from 7.45 in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so we hope that it is some help. You know, of course, we had to set it up in a way that it was we, we could garnish the in information that we needed for these children and that it was protected and that we knew who would be picking up the children at the end of the day and you know all of those things were accurately put into place but we were able to do that really quickly i'm very proud of my team for being able to do that and so we're able to offer that here in our central maui early childhood development center and even our west maui office if there are staff that are needing that kind of resource there as well i understand that it is free for these workers, the, the child care. How many families can you accommodate and how long do you think you have funding to continue uh, the service? So actually the number of children we can accommodate is really based on what we felt was conducive to the size of our spaces as well as the number of staff that we had responding and, and opting to help provide the service. So you know these are our staff that are not uh, providing the telehealth and telework practices, those those services for our clients are still going on, and so those staff are busy doing those services. So some of these are the like the registered behavioral technicians, some of our early childhood staff in the preschool, and the interns and practicum students that were doing this work. So based on that sort of number of staff that we have available, we determined we could probably do about 10 children at a time in our West Maui office. We could do about 10 children here in central Maui and Kahului through our preschool and our playground. And then we could handle, and those were children that were between the ages of three and five years of age, so preschool age. And then we could handle probably five or six one to two year olds in some of our other childcare settings that we have. Because of course those children require more 
tension and more bodies per child in the facility. In terms of your question about how long can we afford to do this, <laughs> um, there's sort of two responses I have to that. First of all, no one's paying for it at this point. We don't have any specific funding through our organization that is set up to provide this kind of service. We just knew it was the right thing to do. It doesn't mean that there won't be funding that somehow becomes made available to us because we are offering this kind of a relief, but that wasn't sort of our initial intention. Our initial intention was to just respond to our healthcare community. And, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship. We're very, um, we're very tightly aligned with our healthcare community here in Maui County. We work very closely with the hospital here. We work closely with our providers, and we are a referral source for them for their services that we need, and we also refer back and forth. So we have a very tight relationship with the healthcare community, and so when we see that they are in a situation like this where they're responding to our community, it only makes sense for us that we respond as best as we can for them in this particular time as well. I think that this is an unprecedented situation, right? None of us really know how to navigate our way right now, and we're trying to do the best we can every day. I feel that's true for our political leaders as well as our emergency responders and our medical facilities. And, you know, businesses are trying to figure out how they're going to keep their doors open and stay afloat. We're all trying to figure out how to help our employees as much as possible. But there's no rule book for something like this. We've just, we just haven't experienced it in our time and in our lifetime. And so people are navigating in a way without, like I said, without direction. And so I just want to urge people to continue to, you know, um, to set examples of kindness and compassion and consideration to be safe with each other. And, you know, in essence, you know, in Hawaii, we're very lucky. We're really not that far away from our mentality of a village setting where everyone takes care of each other and, you know, shares a apple bananas from your tree, put them out on the street for people to take. If your mangoes are ripe, you know, share the, share the love a little bit and let's all just help to support each other as a community. That's what we're trying to do here at Emu Family Services with our resources and what we have available. And if we all just continue to do that, then we will all come through this together. I have to believe that. That was Dean Wong, Executive Director of Imua Family Services. Head over to our website to find out more about the emergency child care services at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow we have a call-in show plan. We tackle the issue of what to do about our overcrowded uh, prisons during this health crisis. Can we keep the inmates and detainees safe and the staff? Should there be early release? Some say yes, some law enforcement agencies say no. What do you think? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.